filled up today hallelujah <laughs> I love that um, I can't hardly believe I'm saying this we are getting close to August and as we get into August schools are going to start getting up and running I don't have the date that Lehman begins but I would encourage you if you think about Lehman school we are going to start praying for them and we're taking waters over and and paper as they need Lehman is expanding this year and they are they will have a full high school as well as a grade school there this year so I think they're very excited about the the expansion and I can't remember but I think they have like 12 or 1300 students is that true lots of students so um, we are very thrilled uh, to be a part of praying for them as they are raising up the next generation with that I'm gonna pray oh father how gracious you are thank you for the reminder in Psalm 32 this morning of how you forgive our sins and that you heal our iniquities and that as we call on you while you may be found that you will guide us with your eye so we ask you lord come upon us with your spirit as we prayed and sang and guide us with your eye that we might live according to your good and perfect purposes in jesus name amen good morning everybody Committed love, perfect love casts out fear. When I understand something of Christ's love for me as a sinner, I respond with love for Christ. And that love includes the feelings and emotions. But emotions come and go, and we will, we will not and must not allow them to mislead us. God loves me whether I feel like it or not. Christians who gauge their relationship with Christ only by their feelings Sometimes, or seldom, they have a, a, let me try that again. Christians who gauge their relationship with Christ only by their feelings seldom have a stable spiritual life that, that need to come out correctly. What makes the difference? It can be summarized in one word, commitment. Feelings come and go, but with commitment, the commitment stays. That may be said in our marriage relationships as well. We who have committed our lives to Christ may feel joy, gratitude, love, and so on. But even when we don't have those feelings, our commitment keeps us true to Christ. This commitment not only keeps us faithful to Christ when we don't feel like it, it also keeps away negative emotions such as doubt and fear. 
John Witherspoon, the only cleric to sign the de Declaration of Independence, once said, it is the only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. And the hope for today, when Christ chose the cross, he was forever committing himself to us. Let us choose on the front end to be equally committed to him, no matter what trials or tragedies may come. Let's worship our Lord.
Psalm 15 begins with two questions. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And he gives an 11-part answer to the question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Amen to that. If you would take your little sheets, if you are, it's probably on the screen, we'll do the Lord, say the Lord's Prayer together if you'd like to stand with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen <laughs> are you good i figured it had to, uh, i was waiting for a teacher to tell me when all the students had gotten in line. <laughs> Our New Testament scripture today comes from Colossians chapter 1. It's a continuation from last week. This is verses 15 through 28. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything that was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, for him and through him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning sup supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You are his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is a secret. Christ lives in you. 
This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present to them God perfect in their relationship to Christ. Good message. All right, if you'll join us now in the responsive reading. To fulfill the ancient promise of salvation, O God, you made me a covenant with our ancestors and pledged them descendants more numerous than the stars. Grant that all people may share in the blessings of your covenant, accomplished through the death and resurrection of your son, sealed by the gift of your spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the gifts that you share with us, because you own all, you created all. You call on us to share back, to give to others that we do not know, that there are others in need and there are others that have not come to know you yet. So Lord, we ask that our, that our gifts that we give today that you guide us in how they are used so that they are used in a way that is pleasing to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you like to rise for the doxology?
Good morning. In Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord Jesus says, When you return to me, I will rejoice over you with singing. When you're tired of playing the prodigal and you return to my love, I will rejoice and sing over you. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? When I was a young man, there was this singer by the name of John Gary. He sang unchained melody like no other. He had a three and one half octave vocal range. He would start as a baritone and end up as a high tenor and just glided through the octaves. But can you imagine the voice of Jesus? He who created vocal cords, he who created songs, he who created music. My oh my. Jesus singing over us. Jesus smiling at us. That's hard for us to comprehend. Very difficult for us to comprehend. I want you to close your eyes and picture Jesus smiling at you. Jesus joyful over you. I promise you he does smile about you. And he will for all eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we revel in your love. We are buoyed up by your love. We are transcended, elevated by your love. We bless your name. And we ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, speak to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm just your mouthpiece. Give me the words that will encourage, enlighten, and edify every soul here this morning. Anoint every word I say, Father, for your glory and the great benefit of all who are here this morning. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no secret that E.H. Peterson is uh, my favorite theologian. You hear me quote him quite often. I will quote him generously this morning. Our God is the God who stands, who kneels, who carries us and stays in our life. This summarizes his posture of blessing in our lives. God stands. He is foundational and dependable. Isaiah 28, 16 from the NLT. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look. I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. God kneels. God gets down on his knees among us. Washes not just our feet, but our very being. He gets on our level and shares himself with us. He does not reside afar off and send diplomatic messages. He kneels among us, pours into us the goodness of his spirit, the vitality of his presence, and the joys of his redemption. He empties himself into us. And miracle of miracles, 
we receive all that he is. God carries us. Does God love us enough to wound us? Yes, amen, he does. There's a beautiful, beautiful portrait. But this portrait is uh, really quite poignant when we understand that typically when a shepherd would carry a lamb over his shoulders, this was a wayward lamb. And the shepherd would typically break the lamb's legs and therefore had to carry him over his shoulders. But in the process, the lamb learned to savor the smell of the shepherd, learned his voice, learned that provision and protection was found in the shepherd. And after the lamb's wounds were healed, he wished only to be in the shepherd's presence. He stayed close. Life is sweet when we finally see our broken road as golden. God stays with us. He sticks with us through thick and thin. Hard times, good times. He shares his life of grace and peace with us. Proverbs 18.24 from the NIV. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. I want to talk to you this morning about the culmination of any great romance, a wedding. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 from the NLT. Because of the joy awaiting him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Does anybody remember last week's sermon? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Because we are seated at the right hand of Christ. We too are seated in heavenly places. Our heavenly places are right here. What joy? Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. What joy? I've preached this here before. I'll preach it again until you get it. This is important. The joy Jesus found in the cross is the joy of redeeming his bride, of providing her atonement for her sins, making her spotless, making her worthy of her groom. This is romance. In Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, the novel is set at the backdrop of the French Revolution. And the story centers around Sidney Carton. The only reason I passed English is because when I was in high school, uh, I dearly loved English literature. I got good enough grades in English lit that it covered my sub subpar performance in English grammar. <laughs> but in the story, Sidney Carton arranges to have a friend who is awaiting the guillotine to be smuggled out of his holding cell the morning of the man's scheduled execution while Sidney Carton takes this man's place. And as he stands before the guillotine, Carton says to himself, 
it's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. Christ did no less for us. He took our place. No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for another. What Jesus did on the cross is the greatest story of romantic love ever told. We find romance throughout scripture, but to me the most fascinating is the allegory of the Galilean wedding. For it points unmistakably to the romance, the great love that Jesus has for us, his bride. My goal this morning is to help us see the rapture of the church for what it is, the great romance. But when we talk about the rapture, the first question we need to ask is why? Why is Jesus coming back for his bride, the church? 24% of all people who call themselves Christians no longer believe in the rapture. The liberal apostate church does not teach, nor does it believe in the rapture. Only evangelicals these days preach the soon return of Jesus Christ to retrieve his bride. If you're an evangelical, you are only 18% of all those who name the name of Christ. Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8 from the Amplified Bible. And you will not, our just God, you will not defend and avenge, will you not, excuse me, elect, defend your elect and chosen ones who cry out to you day and night. Let me read that again. And you, our just God, will you not defend and avenge your elect, your chosen ones, who cry out to you day and night? You will not delay in providing justice on their behalf. I tell you that our God will defend and avenge them quickly. However, when the Son of Man returns, Will he find faith on the earth? Those of us who call ourselves Christians, who are truly keeping the faith, are indeed a remnant. This reminds us of the story of Elijah as he was fleeing Jezebel. We need to ask ourselves, why, why was he fleeing Jezebel? Well, after you slay 400 servants of Baal, you're a little tired. Swinging a sword all day long, it, uh, it can wear you out. He was tired and let himself get scared, but he runs to God's mountain. And hiding in a cave in God's mountain, the Lord God comes to him and whispers, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah engages in a bit of a pity party. He complains to the Lord, your people, Lord, they've broken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed all your prophets. I am the only one left. And the Lord says, I'm preserving 7,000 over here. 7,000. You are not the only one. You are not alone. But to the rest of the so-called church, the rapture is figurative. It's just too good to believe. It's just too hard to believe. Yet these same people will read tarot cards, 
seance with the dead and consult Ouija boards. But the rapture is just too hard to believe. Just too good to believe. Pie in the sky. Lifeway Research has done a recent random study of sermons preached from America's pulpits and of 450 sermons, only 2% were on the topic of end times. We're in trouble, folks. Romans 12, verse 2. But is all this unbelief a matter of what St. Paul warned us of in Romans 12.2? Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Jesus said there will be scoffers in the end days. There will be those who say, where's Christ coming? 2,000 years, how long do we have to wait? Where's his coming? It must be figurative. But fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity and unbelief. God brings the best out of you, develops a well-formed maturity in you. Today, if you believe in the rapture of the church, you're considered fringe. How's it feel to be fringe? You're a radical Christian. You're a Shiite Christian. You're off the edge. To fully answer the question of why Jesus will return for his bride, we need only study the Galilean wedding. But to fully comprehend the Galilean wedding, we first need to understand that Jesus was not just a Jew. He was a Galilean. And all of his disciples were Galilean. We're going long on context this morning. We can't fully comprehend scripture with that context. Here's some context for you. Two-thirds of the gospel narrative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two-thirds of the gospel narrative take place in Galilee. Two-thirds of the gospel have to do with the Galilean culture. So we need to understand something about it. The Galilean wedding was strikingly different than all other weddings in Judaism. When Jesus related his parable of the ten bridesmaids, only Galileans fully understood what he was saying. That only the Galileans fully understood the analogies to the kingdom of God. Jesus' parables were the backbone of his ministry. He spoke in parables that were easily understood and very relational. He used analogies like fishing, shepherding, tending the vineyard, harvesting. People related right away to these wonderful analogies, but as they were on their way home, Oh, he was talking about me. He was talking about my sin. Whoa, that's what he meant. Jesus knew his audience. And he knew how to captivate their minds and stimulate their thinking. Recent, excuse me, recent archaeological discoveries have revealed new details about the Galilean wedding and these details illuminate Jesus' teaching about his return for his bride, the church. It is not incidental 
that when Jesus visited the wedding, when he attended the wedding in Cana of Galilee, it, it's not incidental. This was the revelation of his ministry. His ministry began at Cana in Galilee. His first miracle was Cana in Galilee. But why was Jesus invited at the first place? Got a hot news flash for you. He was fun. He was different. He was fun. This young charismatic rabbi just exuded personality. And he taught the Torah in a brand new way. But why would he walk 90 miles to a wedding? I'm not sure I've walked 90 miles in my life. 90 miles, all the way from Bethany to Cana. That was a three-day walk if you were in good shape. 90 miles. Obviously, he wanted to be there. Was this a family wedding? Good chance. Scripture doesn't say so. But the fact that Jesus' mother was there is a pretty good indicator. The fact that he walked 90 miles, pretty good indicator. This was either family or a close friend of the family. John chapter 2, verse 1 from the NLT. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Key word, celebration. The Galilean wedding was the event, the big event in a Galilean's life. It was the premier event in the Galilean, Galilean culture. But let's break down the particulars of the Galilean wedding that made it unique to all other weddings in Judaism. The father in the Galilean wedding is a central character. He prepared and read the wedding covenant. This was a contract. And he read that contract to the bride and the bride's family. And he offered gifts to the bride. And a particular gift to the bride's father. It was called a dowry. And that dowry was an insurance policy. That if his son, the groom, if anything were to befall him, were he to die young, this dowry was an insurance policy that she would have enough money to sustain her through her life. The father alone determined the day of the marriage. He specifies in this contract a one-year betrothal. And essentially, the bride and the groom, once they are betrothed, will not see each other for a year. Well, that sounds strange. That sounds very strange. The groom will be busy adding on to his father's house. Sound familiar? John, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3 from the New King James. In my father's house are many mansions. Were it not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do we see a pattern here? A very direct correlation between the dynamics of the Galilean wedding and the rapture of the church. And about now you're asking yourself, well now, how did Jesus know when to go to this wedding? Because 
no one knows the exact day. But they can count. They know when the betrothal happened. They can count forward a year. But they still don't know the day nor the hour. The Galilean wedding was always a surprise wedding. You may have known the week, but you didn't know the day and you didn't know the hour. Well, when you think about it, the Galilean wedding was always at night, in the wee hours of the morning. A celebration that is held in the middle of the night, how fortuitous. There's no hustle and bustle. No traffic in the streets, but the wedding party. Nothing to distract from the celebration that is about to begin. A week-long feast with free food, free wine, dancing. That's worth crawling out of bed for. Therefore, as the one-year anniversary approached, the bride and groom's family all slept in their wedding clothes. Why would you sleep in your wedding clothes? You don't want to miss it. You know it's going to be in the middle of the night. You want to be ready. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 5 from the NLT. This is Jesus speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Why do you need a lamp if the wedding's not going to be in the middle of the night? Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. As Jesus is telling this parable, the Galileans found nothing quizzical about this story. Waiting was part and parcel of the Galilean wedding. They wouldn't have found this strange at all. But when the groom blew the ram's horn and made procession to the bride's house, if you were ready, you jumped out of bed and joined the procession. Another interesting facet of the Galilean wedding was called the flying of the bride. An ornately carved litter with an upright chair was taken to the bride's house. She seated herself in the litter, and the litter bearers would carry her or fly her to the wedding feast. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 from the Amplified Bible. Then we who are alive and remain on the earth will simultaneously be caught up, raptured together with them, the resurrected ones, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We fly to the wedding feast. But if you're not ready, you will miss the celebration. Matthew 25, verse 6 from the NLT. Again, Jesus speaking. At midnight they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some oil, because our lamps are going out. But the five wise bridesmaids replied, We don't have enough oil for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. <clears throat> but while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. 
And Jesus finished by saying, so you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Compare this to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 from the NLT. Not everyone calls, who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And on that judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I love the message translation of the scripture. Jesus speaking, I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects were the talk of the town. And you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say you missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. Depart from me. I never knew you. In summary this morning, Father God has announced his covenant with us. To all who are willing to be wed to his son, he has announced his contract with us. He has given gifts to us as an earnest of his intentions and offered us a dowry of inestimable worth which will sustain us throughout eternity. His son, our Lord Jesus, has offered us the cup of marriage and the promise of an eternity with him as his bride. And all we have to do is say yes. And then wait just a little while for him to prepare our heavenly home. Wait just a little while until he sounds the ram's horn and flies us to our wedding. That great celebration and consummation of this great romance. Are we ready? Are we ready? Let me pray. Father, being ready is of far more import than just we making it to the wedding feast. Our being ready, the ramifications of us being ready for that celebration is intended that our cups be so full that we spill over onto everyone around us. Our joy is to be so intense that no one can miss it. Our joy in this celebration, our looking forward to your return is our witness to those who do not believe. So give us your joy, Father. Give us your peace. And through your Holy Spirit, give us a vibrant witness to the fact that you are Savior of the world and you are coming again for those who believe in Make it so, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a song for you.
Let's go. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We know that we are Christ's bride. And Lord, let us always remember that you see us all the time. You know what we're, we're doing always. And let us be a good bride for your son. Let us be the type of bride that you live within us, Lord. So we always want to be there. We know that you can carry us. We know that you will carry us when, when it's needed. But let us also help. Help, help spread your word so that others too can be carried can, can, and can carry your light. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 